Are we selfish for having this conversation about women wanting more and autonomy? Is this selfish of us? <laughs> I mean, society and I say this probably from, says yes. From an American woman standpoint, because I feel like American women are told that I feel like this, that when I have conversations like this with American women, they feel so guilty about wanting what they want. And it's so frustrating. Yeah. So And that's the thing, right? We are conditioned as women, particularly in the United States, we are conditioned to take care of everybody else first. And the idea that we might do something for ourselves or that we might take care of our own needs or that we might have different goals is considered selfish. And I think that's too bad because nobody applies those same standards to men in our society, right? People who identify as men, people who present as men, like they do not get those same standards applied to them. We do. I mean, heck, I was told I stopped at one child and because of the community I grew up in and the religion I grew up in, I was told I was selfish for stopping at one. Like, like we're like, and that goes back to what we're talking about with reproduction. Right. And I know childless women who are childless by choice, who are like, they're constantly being told you're not getting married. You're not having children. That's so selfish. Like you need to be perpetuating the species or you need to be doing that, or you need to be, you need to be producing more little consumers for our capitalist society or you're selfish. And that's horrifying to me because it's like, we really need to get away from that. We really need to look at things and say, okay, are we, you know, there are going to be plenty of people who enjoy having children and want to have more children. And that's great. And as a society, we need to invest in that if we've decided that's important and provide them with a safety net so they can afford to do that. But on the other hand, we also need to make sure that we're not denigrating people who don't want to have children or who want to do other things with their time and their energy and their money and their lives. And we just haven't had that conversation yet because we are so stuck in this idea of, okay, like, and I'm still getting crap, even, even though I've made it so I can't have children and now I'm an old and I'm old enough that nobody, <laughs> right. I'm old enough now that nobody actually expects me to have children. So it's fine. But they still think that I should be getting married again. They still think I should be looking for a partner. And once again, I have been occasionally told I'm selfish And I'm like, how does this even like work? Like I'm selfish because I'm not getting married and like taking care of a man. Like what is even happening? Welcome to Michelle is Money Hungry. I'm your host, Michelle Jackson, and I focus on holding financial conversations that lean into social equity, policy, and access with a splash of pop culture. My goal is to lead these conversations with empathy and help both my listeners and myself learn more about money along the way. For the next week, my guests and I will focus on when American women decide that they want more in their lives. Interestingly, many of the conversations centered around going into entrepreneurship. With that in mind, though, I do want to say that my guests and I aren't necessarily encouraging you to go into business. Instead, this conversation in my mind is a reflection of the policies that aren't in place here in the United States. Policies such as paid parental leave, generous paid sick leave, or just having a degree of flexibility and autonomy over your days so that you can run an errand, schedule a doctor's appointment, or take your kid to ballet. Or sometimes you just have to help your parents out when things come up. I often wonder how different American life would be for women if we had some of these policies in place. Would the choices we make be different? 
When I moved into digital entrepreneurship, I found myself collaborating with brands, doing 1099 work, and needing to send out invoices and just having to set up systems to keep my business organized. It has been an ongoing process to find the right tools and systems for me. I'm so excited about a new tool that I now use that allows me to invoice clients, set up tasks, and even track my time as I work on specific tasks. I also use it as a CRM or client relationship management system. What's the tool's name? Harlow. I am obsessed with Harlow and I'm so excited that Harlow has partnered with me to bring the conversation around women wanting more personally, financially, and professionally to life. Harlow is a woman-owned business designed by former freelancers who understand the challenges of keeping creative businesses organized. I love how responsive the team is to my questions and occasionally I'll send in an email, which is a big deal as they continue to improve and refine this new tool. If you're looking for a comprehensive system to organize your invoicing, manage your clients, and keep yourself organized while seeing your cash flow, I encourage you to give Harlow a try. I am also a proud affiliate as well, so we're partnering, but I'm also an affiliate. Go to michelleismoneyhungry.com backslash Harlow to check it out. My name is Miranda Marquit. I am a freelance writer, uh, speaker, and podcaster. So just a general content creator, but I do so on a freelance basis. And you can find out more at MirandaMarquit.com. Uh, locally, though, I am very politically involved in the system, <laughs> my local <laughs> political system, also with local nonprofits. And so I work hard on issues that affect people in their real lives, including reproductive health care, food insecurity, early childhood education, and housing affordability. I wanted you to be a guest on this episode. We're going to be talking about developing professional autonomy and designing a life that allows you to thrive and just being very unapologetic about wanting more for your life. And I think before we get into the nuts and bolts of this conversation, I, I'm curious as to why you even decided to pursue a professional career that really hinged on you being a freelancer. So what did that look like? Were you in a nine to five before and transitioned into freelancing? Like kind of walk us through the genesis of what in the heck happened to make you make these decisions that have paid off wonderfully. But, but I wonder about that beginning stage. Yeah. So <laughs> when I first had my son, I was working a, you know, for lack of a better term, real job. And I had my son and my ex-husband and I were getting ready, both of us to go back to school. And when I was looking at, okay, what career things do I want to do for my for, for my master's degree, I was like, well, what allows me to stay home, set my own schedule and be available for my son? And so I chose writing. I chose journalism. I went and got my master's degree from Syracuse in magazine, newspaper, and online journalism. And that online piece was hugely important for me because the internet was just taking off. And I figured uh, being able to do online journalism and online content would make a lot of sense for me in terms of making sure I could be home with my son, get him to preschool, uh, help him with his homework, all of those things uh, that we profession, you know, that we want to do. And so I did, I went, did, and got this master's degree. And then immediately, went from 
from that master's degree into making online content and, and freelancing. Because I, I did, I, I knew that like, I wanted to be able to stay home. I wanted to be able to pay some of the bills while my ex was finishing his uh, schooling and, and my schooling got done faster uh, because I did an accelerated program for my master's. And so I was able to, I was able to start doing that as soon as I got out of school. And it really provided us a way to help me start setting up that life. We did do student loans for my ex-husband's first year and a half to two years. Um, for those semesters where I was just getting started as a freelancer, we did use student loans to kind of help supplement that so that I would be able to focus on growing my freelance writing career. So that's why, like, it was a very intentional choice to make sure that I could have the flexibility to be at home. I am so fascinated because of the timing of this. Uh, Listeners, her son is now, what, 19? Yeah, he'll be 20, actually. By the time this comes out, he'll be 20. (laughs) Ah. Um, So to me, this is such a forward thinking, like this is such a forward way, way of thinking. But what I thought about as you were speaking. Um, this series is very much to designed to highlight the, the choices that American women have to make in terms of uh, reproductive care, access, professional autonomy, professional decisions, and how they impact their, their family lives if they choose to have children or not. And one of the things I thought about as you were sharing like your, your thought press process around this was, were you aware that in a regular, like when you were thinking about regular nine to five versus the freelancing, what were the downsides to the nine to five that you, you were aware of just from a policy standpoint that would impact how you were there for your family, if you will? Yeah. So mostly the freedom and the flexibility. So when I, when I was a teenager, my first, my first job outside of babysitting, my first like real job as it were, was being a cashier at a local craft store. And one of the things that I learned when I did that, I did that from, you know, the ages of 16 to 17 about, and one thing I learned was like, I didn't always, even if I put in for time off, I didn't always get the time off that I needed. It was sometimes hard to schedule uh, my, you know, so I schedule my work around my swimming practices and then in the spring around my tennis team practices. And so trying to manage that was very difficult. And so after about a year of working at the craft store, I actually quit that job and began teaching piano lessons uh, to young kids and found that I made more money per hour teaching piano lessons than working minimum wage. And I could set my schedule. So uh, I could set, okay, I know what day of the week I have available to teach piano lessons and I can teach those piano lessons that day of the week. And it's not going to conflict with my other activities. And that was my first taste of like that freedom and flexibility. And so fast forward after I finished my undergraduate degree and I was working in, you know, regular jobs, once again, you don't always get the time off you're asked for. You don't have that flexibility to come in and out of work as you would would like. And it was very difficult. And I, I had a job, I was working a job when my son was born and my ex was the primary caregiver, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hiding in a little, like, this was before a lot of people like had accommodations for breastfeeding and pumping. And so I'm like in this little bathroom stall, like trying to angle my breast pump, like 
you know, <laughs> pumping. And like, that's just this, this whole thing. And so, so when, so when I was looking forward to like, okay, um, my ex is getting ready to go to grad school. He thinks I should go to grad school as well. And what can I do? Like, I was literally like, I got to do something that will allow me to set my own schedule and have that freedom and flexibility. I don't like being required to be in the same place at the same time every day. I don't like, uh, I don't like getting bored of what's going on. The beautiful thing about content creation, because I am a podcaster, I am a speaker. Um, I do do brand ambassador stuff. And, uh, and of course I'm a writer because I have all of these things to do. It's always, there's always something interesting and different going on. I have ADHD and something <laughs> interesting and different going on health. There's a lot that went into that, but basically the bottom line, and I said a lot of words to say it is that freedom and flexibility. And I got a taste of that freedom and flexibility early on when I was a teenager and basically was like, okay, uh, yeah, I'm going to work this nine to five as long as I have to, but let's start moving into a situation where I can get away from that and I can have more freedom and flexibility in my schedule and in my life. I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm curious about when you speak with women as you are on the campaign trail, what is it that they're telling you that they're looking for in terms of policy and, and policy that could better their lives? So right now, uh, and no surprise to anybody, forefront of most women's minds right now is in fact reproductive health. And that's that's the forefront of most of the women's minds when I speak to them. We know that Roe versus Wade, we know that upholding that, we know that that law actually has a very large amount of support across the political spectrum. So 73% of Americans did not think that uh, Roe should be overturned. And Interestingly enough, here in Idaho, where I live, that it has one of the biggest gender gaps in voter registrations, uh, women versus men. We have the second highest gender gap in terms of women registering to vote and women registering as Democrats because they're very upset. And that's very a very interesting statistic in a red state, right? In a state like Idaho, that's generally right. conserv considered very conservative. So that's the biggest issue people are running into right now is that reproductive health piece. And then if you talk to them a little bit more, uh, they're interested in parental leave and they're interested in uh, childcare and early childhood education uh, because these are things, these are investments in community at large. And these are investments in a healthier, safer community. And when you have those investments in a healthier and safer community, then you have more options for your life and you have more options for work. Because right now, when you combine all of these things, the fact that the US does not have very affordable childcare, we do not have comprehensive and uniform family leave policies. And we don't have a lot of support for people who do have children. So if you're being forced to give birth, you have fewer options. And so that reproductive health piece, they're talking about banning birth control here in Idaho, which is awful as well, something I'm fighting against. And birth control is one of the things that provides, and that falls right into reproductive health, that provides options for women. When you can choose whether or not to have children and when to have them, that is huge. And the fact that there are states talking about banning uh, contraceptives is very frustrating because that's where you get that choice and that freedom and that flexibility to think about, okay, do I work a nine to five? Do I work part-time? Do I try and do freelance? Do I start a side hustle? All of those options uh, become moot if you cannot decide when and how many children to have. And if you don't have the supports to help you once you have those children. I wasn't really going to go into this angle of questioning, but I'm curious, 
when it comes to policy, like family leave, medical leave, or just having a minimum federally mandated vacation period for people, because we do not have that, what would we do to pay for these things? I think it was really interesting. This past weekend, I was up in the mountains, as I do, as you know, for a couple of days. And at the place that I was staying, I met a lovely couple who happened to be visiting from England. And the the wife was like, we were talking about differences in, in culture and stuff. And she, and I said something like, well, you know, Americans would just like to have federally mandated, minimum mandated leave. Like we don't even have leave. And she, and she goes, well, you know, it's so expensive for me because she employs people within her role. She goes, it's so expensive for me because I, you know, have to pay five and a half weeks of leave for her her employees. And I looked at her and I said, we would just like to even have two weeks off. Like we don't even have that time off. And, and I don't think people really quite understand that, but there's all these arguments to, to keep those things from happening, to keep that policy for, from uh, being put into place. How, like, what's the counter argument in terms of like the cost of putting, you know, policies in, in place that allows for two to three weeks leave a year that's just mandated, so on and so forth. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because again, we're talking about just designing lives where, where women thrive. And I think initially that starts also with policy. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that I find interesting is, well, we have a crappy, can I, can I swear on this? Can I say, shitty? of course you can swear. Okay, yes, great. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> we have a shitty approach to our priorities when we talk about expenditure, right? You and I both know that when you are putting together what you want to do with your life, what you want to do with your finances, you start with your values and you start with your priorities. And if you look at US spending as a whole, you would see like somebody just looking at it would be like, oh, clearly our priorities are this bloated military industrial complex because that's where we spend a ton of money. And our priorities are uh, big tax cuts for corporations. And when you look at the amount of cost, right, the Congressional Budget Office back in 2017 during that big, much touted tax uh, jobs and tax cut act or whatever they called it. But back in 2017, when they passed that law, you know, they, the estimate was that it would cost more than $1 trillion, $1 trillion, that's a T, more than $1 trillion over the course of 10 years. And what they found in when the law went into implementation in 2018 and the companies received this great tax cut and everything else, uh, more than more than 80% of that money went to stock buybacks to prop up the stock market. It did not go. There was some great hullabaloo made about like, oh, here are some one-time, here are some one-time bonuses for employees for certain companies, but it did not appreciably increase wages. It did not, in fact, trickle down, as they say. So we are in a constant state of talking about, oh, well, if we raise the minimum wage so that people can go out of poverty, that will do prices up. Well, nobody talks about, okay, so if we're paying the CEO $350 million and giving them another raise so that next year they're getting even more pay, like we don't talk about how that affects prices. And the other thing we forget about when we're talking about increases, inflation didn't stop, even though the minimum federal minimum wage is still the same as it was 10 years ago. Inflation didn't magically stop because wages weren't going up. Inflation is still here. It's 
all very backward the way we think about this. And so what we need to decide as a country is, do we actually value our people? Are we ready to invest in our communities? Because if we're ready to do that, then that changes the conversation. And we can say, okay, well, if we're going to invest in our people and our communities, then, you know, maybe we don't need to be spending more than the next 10 countries after us combined on military, right? Uh, we can still do what we need to do with our military without spending as much. Uh, our corporations don't need all these tax loopholes, right? There's a lot of that right now that we only talk about the cost when it comes to investing in people and communities, but we never talk about the costs of these other things that we're spending money on that do not have the same returns, right? The dividends that you get when you invest in humans uh, come in the form of safer communities, healthier communities, higher paying jobs, and better infrastructure. And those things aren't profitable. And so people people kind of pull back from them. But when, but until we're ready to invest in our people, we're going to continue to have these struggles. This conversation is all about uh, developing autonomy around our lives as women, as American women and designing our best lives. One of the things that, that I've watched with a lot of interest is how people have very mindfully transitioned from professional roles that didn't serve them and made their way into professional roles that helped them design better lives. So for example, there's been a lot of chatter around, well, why aren't people working such and such jobs? And I'm like, because they've decided to leave those industries and move into industries that better serve them. Say, for example, they were in retail, but then they used their transferable skills and now they're in tech. Let's say that the government doesn't get the memo. <laughs> <laughs> um, which honestly is not a big leap. If you're a woman listening to this episode, what are some things that you, some, some tips that you would give them if they're wondering, well, how do I design a life that allows me to thrive and, and make money at the same time? Yeah. And that's the hard thing, right? Because we don't have a lot of the systems in place to really support women in this country. We just don't. And some states are even worse than others. But I think one of the first things to do is figure out, okay, where, what are my skills and talents? And how can I put those to use in a job that's a little more flexible? And one of the things that's hard is a lot of the more flexible jobs are considered women's work, which means I get paid less. Uh, but one of the things I found is if you take a step back and say, okay, do I have something that translates into a marketable skill that I could maybe parlay? So uh, there are a lot of teachers who are becoming tutors. There are a lot of sites online where you can sign up to be a tutor. You can tutor people in other countries, and that kind of gives you a little more flexibility. And that gives you the chance to earn more money while controlling your schedule. Um, so, so start by thinking about, okay, what are my skills? What can I have that's marketable? And then how do I parlay that into, into a higher paying or more flexible job? Another thing to consider is if you have a job that's considered white collar, take a look at you know, talking to your company about, do I really need to come in? Let's talk about a hybrid schedule because a lot of companies now there are more fully remote companies than there have been before. There are more companies allowing you more flexibility 
than before. Like you only have to come into the office two or three days a week and the rest of the time you can work from home. And depending on what you do, do you really need to be sitting in an office from nine to five every day? You know, maybe you can come in, drop off the kids, come in at 10 and, you know, be there from 10 to three, go pick up the kids and then finish up at home. Like there are some different flexible working arrangements that you can talk to your company about. And companies are a little more open to these arrangements because we have been seeing in the last year or so, you know, they talk about the great resignation. Well, a lot of that was actually people moving to higher paying jobs or more flexible jobs because they weren't getting what they needed. And so reach out to your employer, talk about that, talk about different work arrangements, especially if there's no reason for you to be coming into the office. When you first started working for yourself, what were your dreams then versus your personal and professional dreams now? (laughs) So when I first started, I I was literally like, I just want to pay the bills and be able to be home with my son. And that was pretty much it. It was like, if we can just like pay the bills, have our subsistence living, pay the bills while my ex is in college, well, finishing his PhD, not really in college, but always finishing graduate school, getting his PhD. Uh, Then, you know, if I can just, if I can just do this and like make a subsistence living for us, cover our bills at the most basic level so that I'm flexible and home with my son. Uh, And then once my, you know, when, once he finishes and gets a, gets a, a job of his own, and, you know, and, um, health insurance, (laughs) then we'll be set. Right. And so originally my main thought was just, okay. Um, I just, I just want to be able to do this and then I'll, you know, stop doing it and and be your typical stay at home mom. while while my, uh, while my man goes out and brings home the bacon, (laughs) but, uh, after, after a couple of years, I realized, okay, I really like this. This is also more lucrative than I imagined. Like it, it, after a couple of years, I was making way more than we needed uh, to cover our bills. We were able to, like, I made enough with just my income while my ex was finishing his PhD. I made enough for us to buy a house. Uh, we qualified for a house, bought a house, like all those things. And then I started realizing, you know, I don't want to give this up. I like doing it. I like, you know, the freedom and flexibility it gives me. And I started realizing also, Uh, as I'm learning about investing, right? Because now I have extra money. I can invest as I'm investing. I'm like, well, now I'm preparing for retirement. We're preparing for the future. And now I can use my investments also to fund travel. I love to travel uh, just like you, one of my very favorite things. And so I realized, okay, so this is something that I can do that provides me with my own money just in case, which turned out to be a good thing because then, you know, my ex-husband asked for a divorce. And, um, but like it's a good way to have, so just sort of shifted to like, wait a second, this isn't just a way for me to subsist. It's a way for me to actually design my life. And so I started looking at it in terms of, okay, now how do I keep raising my rates so that I'm working less, uh, but still making the same amount or even more? I started looking at, okay, how do I position myself as a leader in the field so that I'm in demand and I don't have to constantly be pitching and asking for jobs and and applying for work. Uh, I want to build that reputation where, where clients come to me. Um, And so, so I started looking at that. And then today, basically it's, it's a, I use it as a way to say like, okay, well now this helps me fund my nonprofit work and my activism, right? Like I'm, I'm on three local boards here in Idaho Falls where I live and uh, I'm, I'm, running for office. And when I'm, when this election is over, I'll still be working as an activist in my local community. And so now I use it, it's a means to an end. It's a way for me to say, okay, now I 
I've been doing this for almost 20 years. I've built up a reputation. I've built up a good income stream. And now I can use that flexibility and freedom to work less each week, but be busy with all of these other things that matter to me. When you're talking with folks who, who haven't done what you've done, what's their reaction in particular, when you're speaking with women about your professional life and your interests, you know, in a conversation where that makes sense, that it comes up, What's the reaction? Like, are they intrigued? Are they like, I don't understand a thing you're talking about. Like this, <laughs> this could never be possible for me or wh- like what's the reaction? So a lot of, a lot of what I end up with is people, well, first of all, people are like, I can't believe you actually make money as a writer and content creator. And I kind of joke about, you know, I, I kind of knew it as a sellout. Um, like, <laughs> let's be honest, right? I mean, I'm writing a bunch of like, the, my, the bulk of my, I, I've, I've started building up other streams. I do have, you know, I do have a couple of uh, Kindle Vela things going on. I do have a couple of mini courses and I do have, you know, things like that. Uh, that are starting to bring some income in. And I did just publish the second edition of my book on becoming a freelance writer on Amazon. And so I do have things like that where there is other income starting to come in. And I've been, I've started freelancing for podcasts. And so I am getting paid for some of that podcast work, which is great. Uh, So people are kind of disbelieving because they're like, how can you even make a living doing that? And I explained, first of all, well, first of all, it's, it's hard, right? The first two years are brutal <laughs> and, and you have to work a lot and you have to position yourself a lot and it's very brutal. And the first couple of years, um, even into the third year, I was, I, as a freelancer, I, there were weeks where I would work like 50, 60 hours a week, right? Uh, when you start doing this, and you start and, and you start out and you make it a business and you're trying to grow it like it is it's like not it's not overnight and so i think it's important that i explain that to people because i'm like hey i have been building this business for almost 20 years mm-hmm. and i think it's important to be realistic but at the same time i say look but even if you just get started and you only have a few hours a week and you're only making $500 a month like that's a start And you can start putting that money away. You can start investing some of that money. You can start saving some of that money and making sure that you're putting it toward the things that you want in your life and building that. We have a saying in journalism. We always, when I was in journalism school, when I was in J school, um, we had our teachers always talk to us about the importance of having and uh, having fuck you money right? Mm-hmm. What, what happens when you get an editor who asks you to suppress something, who asks you to do something uh, unethical? What happens when you get to that point, right? Or what happens when, you know, <laughs> you know, if you need to be able to say, fuck you and leave. And I think that's important for women to build up on, even if it's just a little bit at a time. And if you are a stay at home, uh, if you are a stay at home partner and you've got somebody who is in charge of all of the money and you don't have any money of your own, uh, you know, go to them and insist that they open up an IRA in your name and make spousal contributions to that because that becomes your money. (laughs) And at the very least, if you are the one taking care of the household and the children and all of those things, you should be getting some sort of a compensation and paycheck. That's your own money in the form of spousal IRA contributions. So for the love of heaven, please do that. Uh, But I always tell people, Hey, you know, find something, even if it's driving for Lyft and and you're getting a couple hundred dollars a week, or even if you're driving or, or if you're, you know, for Instacart and you get 50, you know, 50 bucks a week, like 
just whatever it is, find something you can do. Start out with a couple of hours to begin getting that base for some money that you can invest, set aside, whatever that is your own. And that can help you start building up what you need to develop that lifestyle. And even if you have a partner, you know, talk to them, say, Hey, let's talk about how we want to design a lifestyle. Will you support me as I work on getting, you know, an extra thousand dollars a month that we can put toward our shared goals as a family and really sit down and have those values conversations uh, because just getting started, but doing it from a place where, okay, am I doing this for a purpose and a reason is what's most important. One of the things that I love is um, that you just talked about was you shared some ideas of how people can think about earning money within the space that they're in. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite new uh, opportunities is called Loopy, L-O-O-P-I-E. And it is a laundry service, basically. So you can sign up to be a Loopy partner, a washer. And you just wash clothes. Like the only thing you need is to have a a washer and dryer, washer and dryer at your house. And I love it because uh, if you're a mom or if you are, for whatever reason, you are at home, you're not necessarily even a mom, but you're at home for whatever reason, but you have a washer and dryer, you could definitely make money doing something like that. I've seen people in my neighborhood who, uh, there are a couple of people who are dog walkers. Denver is a hugely dog-friendly city. People love their pets and dog walkers make crazy money here if they have multiple clients because people really care about the welfare of their pets, but maybe they can't walk their dog as often as they would like. Maybe they have small children and they have to prioritize the kids over the dogs and they, you know what I mean? Like they have these choices. And so maybe you love dogs and you have an infant and you just make money dog walking while you have the infant strapped on. You know what I mean? Like there's just a, I love that right now there's all this technology set up to help get us in front of these kinds of opportunities where we can optimize the time that we have. And we don't necessarily have to go into an office to do a thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the things that we really do need to start with and and realize, right. That, you know, the, the dog sitting, the this laundry thing I really like. I need to see if it's here in town just so that I, I can take advantage of it. I would like somebody <laughs> else to do my laundry things. I don't know if it's in Idaho yet. It, uh, no, <laughs> it's not. It, it's in like 10 states right now. And Colorado is one, which is part of the reason why I've been looking at it because I want to share it with people. So, but it's growing. Yeah. And I just think that it's hugely important to take a step back and say, okay, well, what can I do? What can I do in this small period of time that I have available to me? And how do I get started? And, and that's, you know, once you get started, yeah, you're, it's, you're going to have this learning curve that you have to deal with. You're going to have to figure out, okay, does this really work with my schedule? What do I need to do? And then, you know, and and then you're going to start small, you know, start small, start with 50 bucks a week. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a good place to get started. One of the things that does I think factor heavily in the choices that we make as American women and the choices that we make in terms of autonomy is healthcare. So we talked about health access at the beginning of our conversation, but 
I, I think it's important to talk about access to healthcare and, and in particular health insurance. And it's one of those things that I never quite understood how powerful uh, having access to healthcare was in terms of building a life of autonomy until I pursued entrepreneurship. I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but <laughs> could you kind of share your thoughts on how, if we're looking for autonomy, how health insurance and access to care, like health insurance specifically does influence the choices that we make and some things to consider. Yeah. So I think that's, that's the thing, right? Like, so for my entire time, the the last nearly 20 years. So since 2000, basically since 2005, I have not uh, had like regular healthcare except for a couple of years here and there because if you decide to go freelance and you don't have an employer, you know, a traditional employer, then you are stuck paying for your own health insurance. And so I have had to do that, uh, except for the time when I did work remotely for a W-2 for a startup for two years, and then for about eight months, uh, right after my ex-husband got his first job and before like his first job as a professor with healthcare, and before he asked me for the for a um, for a divorce. So I think that the first the first thing to consider is okay how am I going to pay for this healthcare because if you don't have access to that health insurance that can be rough uh, you know you might have to check with your state for a Medicaid program the Affordable Care Act uh, go to your state exchange see if you qualify for subsidies to reduce the cost of that healthcare because without that healthcare like that's that's one of the things that keep a lot of people trapped in their jobs right <laughs> like healthcare is vital. A lot of people are trapped in their jobs because they can't afford or think they can't afford to go off their job because then they'll lose their subsidized, their employer subsidized healthcare. And that's an issue that we have. And because it really does limit you because even with health insurance, you can go bankrupt if you get sick enough in the US. If you, exactly. have, a, if you have cancer or something like that, you can go bankrupt even if you have health insurance. If you have a major heart event, if you have a major accident, if you're in a major car accident, like all of these things, you can go bankrupt even if you have health insurance. So I think it's important, like, yeah, <laughs> like that's the biggest thing is looking at looking at that because it is, it's a huge deal. And being able to have access to affordable healthcare is probably one of the biggest things about truly having that ability to develop freedom and flexibility in your life. And for me, I've been lucky because we qualified when my ex and I first moved back to Utah and he was working on his PhD. We qualified for Medicaid for our son. We didn't for us, but we did for our son. And so we just crossed our fingers and hoped and we're just glad that we could take care of our son with the help of Medicaid. After a couple of years, I had enough that we could get a pretty basic health insurance plan through a group policy. It was This was before the ACA, before the Affordable Care Act. And so we were able to do that. And then when the Affordable Care Act came around, then we switched to an exchange plan. And by that time, I was making enough that we didn't even qualify for a subsidy, but we still had access to, to plans that worked for us. The introduction of the health savings account, the HSA helped a lot. We were able to get a plan with a higher deductible and then also contribute to the health savings account. And so, so that helped us a lot. The, the ACA and a health savings account, that combination of things has really made it so that is it still kind of expensive for me? Yes. It costs me almost $500 a month to cover myself for healthcare. Yes. But I'm all yeah. But I'm also fortunate in that my ex-husband still has my son on his 
health insurance and he has very good health insurance since he works as a college professor. And so my son is on that health insurance and can be until age 26, once again, due to the ACA. And so, so that's actually been a big help to me personally, as somebody who is self-employed is having access to that. Would I prefer us to have Medicare for all and do sliding scale need-based premiums? 100% would definitely prefer to have that option. But where we're at right now, this is what we have. And uh, and it has been hugely important in making sure that I don't have to go back, go back to working a real job. <laughs> what has surprised you the most about designing an intentional life? And what, what are some tips that you would share for women listening to this episode who are maybe at the beginning stages of doing something like this? Yeah. So for me, the most surprising thing was when I took a step back and realized that I wasn't actually doing anything with intention mm. for, for example, like, cause I was, cause I did like the, the big step for me in moving forward with this was, was when I was like, hi, gosh, I would really like to travel more. Uh, I wish I could afford a trip to Europe. And then I looked around and I realized that I had a whole bunch of like weird kitchen appliances that I never used that I bought because they looked cool. Uh, I had a bunch of knickknacks that were just stored in corners and piled up in places. And I realized I was like, wait a sec, I have just been buying stuff mindlessly because it looks cool. And I toted it all up and I'm like, my gosh, I could have gone to Europe three times with the amount mm. of money I have spent on all of this stuff. And that's when I took a step back and started saying, okay, wait a second then. What do I want to be able to do? And then the other thing I started doing, and this is kind of a hard switch to make is because a lot of the time we're like, I need more money to live. And we think of our money and we think of a budget and we, and we're just like, I, I just need more money to live. And chances are you do. I mean, here in the U S you'd probably just need more money to live. And, but the thing I started saying was like, wait a second, it's not just about living and about needing more money for the sake of needing more money. It's also, okay, what do I want that life to look like? What kinds of things matter the most to me? And how is my money a tool to help me get there? And no longer just thinking of money as like, okay, I just need more money. I started mm -hmm. thinking of like, no money as a resource. How am I directing that resource and how is it helping me reach my goals? And so that was kind of the first shift that I made. And I was like, okay, so now I've got to put, you know, I've got to prioritize my spending and say, okay, is this important? Does this matter to me? Is this helping me advance a goal? Is this helping me with my future? Is this helping me design the life I want? No, no, this grilled cheese sandwich maker that I will literally get out twice a year. This is not helping me with any of those things. So I will not buy this. And instead <laughs> I will put that money into my investment account so that it will grow. And so it's okay. So 30 bucks that I didn't spend on a, a grilled cheese sandwich maker that I'm never going to use anyway is now in an investment account and earning compounding returns. And by itself, that $30 is probably not going to like whatever, but it started getting me thinking about different things. Like, okay, so um, now I can say like, okay, I'm going to free up 30 bucks a week to put toward this. And I'm going to spend less money doing these things that don't matter to me or less money buying this stuff that doesn't matter. Um, you know, the general estimate is that we, we waste between 10 and 15% of our monthly budget. And that waste is whatever waste means to you, right? Things that you don't need, things that you uh, don't particularly want, whatever, whatever that means to you, we all have different priorities. But take a look at that and say like, okay, can I free up, even start with 5%, can I free up 5% of my, my income each month and start directing that as a resource toward reaching my goals? Are we selfish for having this conversation about women wanting more and autonomy? Is this selfish of us? 
I mean, society and I say this probably from, says yes. From an American woman standpoint, because I feel like American women are told that I feel like this, that when I have conversations like this with American women, they feel so guilty about wanting what they want. And it's so frustrating. Yeah. So And that's the thing, right? We are conditioned as women, particularly in the United States, we are conditioned to take care of everybody else first. And the idea that we might do something for ourselves or that we might take care of our own needs or that we might have different goals is considered selfish. And I think that's too bad because nobody applies those same standards to men in our society, right? People who identify as men, people who present as men, like they do not get those same standards applied to them. We do. I mean, heck, I was told I stopped at one child. And because of the community I grew up in and the religion I grew up in, I was told I was selfish for stopping at one. Like, like we're like, and that goes back to what we're talking about with reproduction, right? And I know childless women who are childless by choice who are like, they're constantly being told you're not getting married. You're not having children. That's so selfish. Like you need to be perpetuating the species or you need to be doing that, or you need to be, you need to be producing more little consumers for our capitalist society or you're selfish. And that's horrifying to me because it's like, we really need to get away from that. We really need to look at things and say, okay, are we, you know, there are going to be plenty of people who enjoy having children and want to have more children. And that's great. And as a society, we need to invest in that if we've decided that's important and provide them with a safety net so they can afford to do that. But on the other hand, we also need to make sure that we're not denigrating people who don't want to have children or who want to do other things with their time and their energy and their money and their lives. And we just haven't had that conversation yet because we are so stuck in this idea of, okay, like, and I'm still getting crap, even, even though I've made it so I can't have children. And now I'm an old and I'm old enough that nobody, (laughs) right. I'm old enough now that nobody actually expects me to have children. So it's fine, but they still think that I should be getting married again. They still think I should be looking for a partner. And once again, I have been occasionally told I'm selfish And I'm like, how does this even like work? Like I'm selfish because I'm not getting married and like taking care of a man. Like what is even happening? What's even your thought process here? (laughs) Like (laughs) who cares? Like, like, I mean, but yeah. So, you know, and I, and I get that too, because I like solo travel and I'm told like, oh, well, how selfish that you want to do solo travel so you can do what you want and see what you want. And I'm like, so in order to not be a selfish traveler, I have to bring somebody with me and then. Go see and what they, they want to see. You know what? You bring <laughs> like, someone. First of all, this is what? the problem with trying to bring someone with you. Half the time, they don't have the money to go with you when you want to go, right? There's there's like all these jokes about people planning trips. And then like at the last minute, everyone's like, well, I can't go. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, and, so, you know. And once again, it goes back to this freedom and flexibility, right? Like how many people out there have a job that will like, cause I have a bestie and we did a Christmas cruise back in 2018 and it was really fun. We had a great time, but it was a nightmare trying to figure out exactly which cruise to book and how to do it because she only had 14 days of vacation for the whole year and oh she didn't want to use them all on the cruise. And so we had this whole thing where you know, we did it over Christmas. Okay, great. They were going to give her the day after Christmas anyway, and she had and Christmas Eve off anyway. And so we kind of, we were lucky. We kind of positioned where we had a weekend involved there and like, but it was a whole production trying to get it so that she could take the minimum number of days off because she didn't have enough days left at the end of the year. Right. Mm. <laughs> so, so there's that too. There's that, once again, that time flexibility. And I have a couple, I do have a couple of um, semi-regular travel companions that, you know, sometimes we 
go on a road trip together or do something fun together. And I do have a couple of those uh, travel companions, but they're people who like me have flexible schedules. You know, one of them is a fellow freelancer and he and I sometimes plan trips together. And then um, the other one is a friend of mine who lives eight hours away and, but he does loan origination and he doesn't have an office. He can do it all from home. And so that makes it very flexible for us to travel, still kind of get our work done when we need to in the morning and then go do what we want to do in the afternoon. And so choosing those travel companions is also important because the other issue you run into is, okay, so uh, I go traveling with some, like I had, um, well, who I call the bad boyfriend. Do you remember the bad boyfriend? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> but like we would travel together when he had time off. Okay, that's fine. But he didn't get what I do for work. And so he would be upset if I wanted to take two or three hours in the morning to just like order my day, answer some emails, write an article, maybe like he would be upset that I would take because he he was like, well, we're on vacation. And I'm like, yeah, but it's different for me than for you. And, you know, and he would just like moan about it all the time. And so like, so that's the other thing, right, is having that freedom and flexibility to do the life you want to live. Also, like you said, how are you going to manage travel or companionship or whatever when other people don't have that same level of freedom and flexibility? Here is the last question, which is what, what's next for you? Like, do you, are you committed to this type of lifestyle design moving forward? Would you ever go back to a nine to five? I feel like I know the answer (laughs) (laughs) and just what's next. Yeah. So, yeah. So I am working on, you know, building more streams of income so that I rely less on the writing clients, even though I do like writing. I am still working on building other streams of income so that I can take more time to do the things I want to do. Uh, And, you know, and I do find that I like the podcasting. So, you know, I want to focus on that. And I like, I've been doing some brand ambassador, national spokesperson stuff, and I've enjoyed doing that quite a lot. And so I want to be able to shift, kind of shift into that, that kind of approach. Uh, Because it does provide me, once again, with more freedom and flexibility, uh, a little bit more of an income that doesn't rely just on writing, uh, which can be time consuming. So... So yeah, so there's just a lot, uh, but yeah, definitely sticking with this. Um, I did once again, you know, from 2016 to 2018, I did work for a startup, a tech startup remotely. Um, I would consider something like that if it paid enough and was flexible. One of the great things about the company I worked for at that time was they did, they offered unlimited vacation. Uh, They didn't have us clock in hours. They basically were just like, here are your tasks. You know, Mm. if you can get your tasks done, we don't care what you do with the rest of the time. And, you know, they, I mean, it was a really great, it was really a unicorn. It was wonderful to work for them because once again, they invested in their human capital and they were bought uh, for, you know, 60 million, more than $60 million, um, you know, two years after I started working there because the property had become so valuable because when you are willing to provide freedom and flexibility for your workers and you treat them well, you know, health insurance, the health insurance was great. Uh, matching contributions for this, for the retirement plan was great. All of this stuff. When you treat your people well, then you have the pick of the great talent and then your business grows. Like we've seen that, right? When people treat people right and people's needs are being met, then they, they're invested in the, they're invested in it. And so like, that's the other side of it too, is how do we, how do businesses behave, you know, in a way that they're they're always complaining and it's like, well, if you treat your people well and invest in your people, then they will do a good job for your company and you don't have to hold their hand. 
I feel like that's get what really needs to be done. Right? I feel like that's a really good way to end this because I, I often think about this. I, I loved my old position until how I was managed changed. And so I was, I had so much autonomy and freedom. This was my old nine to five listeners. Mm -hmm. Um, and I grew my position like exponentially. It was crazy how much I, I helped to grow that role and brought in money and all this kind of stuff. Right. But then the management changed, the directors changed and how they, how people manage their staff is a big reason why you have no staff. <laughs> like right? um, how people handle the hiring process is why you can't hire people because of how <laughs> you're, you're onboarding. It's look, I used <sighs> to hire people. I would hire college students and they would literally work with me the entire four years that they were in school because it was quick and quick and easy. I understood their pain points. They wanted to have fun and get paid. Boom. I gave them responsibility. They had fun. They got paid fun, by the way, within that role that I was hiring for was like, we would, they would take the student international students. Cause we were working with international students. They would take them to the basketball games that maybe I couldn't attend. And I was like, look, the only thing I need you to do is go with them. Uh, no, I would attend it, but because I lived in Denver and they lived in Boulder, I would be like, I just need you to make sure they get back to Boulder. Design, <laughs> right. I, you know what I mean? Like, so they would come to Denver with, they would meet the students in De in Boulder. I would meet them in Denver. So I wouldn't have to go to Boulder. They, I, they would pick them up for me. 20, 30 of them. They're adults, but still they're not used to taking American public transportation. We would meet in Denver. We would go see the Denver nuggets. We'd have an amazing time. The students would take them back. They got paid for that whole night. They were thrilled. They were thrilled. I am still in touch with those students that I employed many, many, many years ago. They are now lawyers. They're doing amazing things. And they were still requesting up until like a year ago, references from me. It's not hard to be a good employer, but a lot of places of work make it so hard <laughs> and it's laughable. And it, if, if there's, they're like, I can't find anybody to work here. I'm like, well, gee, Bob, why are you requiring nine weeks of onboarding? That like a nine week application process or 17 different like steps. Like no one has time for that. But if you do, that's fine. You're not going to find anybody to work your job. Exactly. And I just, I think it's so, yeah. So I think it's so vital that we, you know, take a step back and, and think about how do we treat these folks? And like you said, the onboarding, the thing that I find fascinating is in the last, the last three weeks or so I've had like, I don't know, three different, three different places come to me and be like, oh yeah, we would love to have you work for us. Uh, will you fill out an application? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I start looking at the application and I'm just like, no, like, because we have the you know, right to say no you know, to these things. If you know enough about me that you want me to work for you, just have me fucking work for you. <laughs> like, And listeners, again, we have the right to say no to requests that don't make sense. Okay. Like this is, this is the point that Miranda is bringing up. It's like, if you know who I am and you've reached out to me, why am I jumping through some additional hoops? That makes no sense. Right. So I just think, you know, <laughs> take a step back, 
really think about, you know, what makes, what sen- makes sense to you. And, you know, you may not be in a position right now where you can just like wake up tomorrow morning, be like, I'm going to have all the flexibility in my life. This is a thing that takes time to work up to. And it did, it take, it took me years to work up to, because I had to plan ahead. I had to plan out what I was going to do, where I was going to put my money. And I had to work more hours than I wanted to work to position myself originally. Um, but it does start with taking a look at, okay, where am I now? What would I like my life to look like? And what are some first baby steps I can take to start shifting, making that shift? All right, ladies and gents and whomever may be listening to this episode. Miranda, if you could do me a favor and share some of your projects, how we can follow you, that would be fantastic. My main hub is MirandaMarkwit.com. So you can find me at MirandaMarkwit.com. And then also I did write a Kindle Vela and I'll send you a link, but I did write a Kindle Vela about like being single (laughs) and my life as a single person. And it includes the infamous story of dating the guy who shot someone on new year's eve this story Uh, is crazy people you gotta buy it just for that story and then i did recently start a novella on solo travel it's only three three episodes in but you can go and and check it out and uh, see what's going on there but yeah my main place to go is mirandamarkwit.com you can follow me on instagram and twitter my handle is at m markwit so m markwit Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure having this conversation. And I think that you gave us a lot of food for thought. Yay. Well, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) These are always, always great conversations. And I love listening to your conversations on the Michelle's Money Hungry podcast. So thank you so much for having me on. 